0: Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs, and for the next year, I'll be teaching entrepreneurship at Vin University in Hanoi, Vietnam. Today's guest, please welcome Melissa Swift, author of Work Here Now, Think Like a Human, and Build a Powerhouse Workplace. Melissa, welcome.
1: Great to be here, and thanks for staying up late to
0: do this. Oh my gosh, it's my pleasure, and I really enjoyed the book, and I think uh, people who get this book will definitely get a lot out of it, especially leaders of uh, larger entities will definitely get a lot out of this. So let's start with uh, you telling us how you got here, what's your professional background?
1: Yeah, so I'm a, a workforce consultant and consulting leader by trade. I actually, on Monday, I start as the... Head of Workforce and Organization for North America at Capgemini Invent, so I'm super excited about that. Um, Previously, I led the transformation practice uh, for North America at at Mercer. And prior to that, I led the uh, digital transformation and workforce transformation practices on a global basis at Corn Ferry. So this is the the work that I, I do and I love, and I'm just really excited to be talking about it.
0: Well, what got you into this line of work and what were your degrees?
1: So I was actually, I was an English major. So I guess that explains the writing, right? Um, yeah. And then I um, have my MBA in finance. Um, so it's, it's, I think it's it's a bit of that intersection, right? Of the world of data and evidence, and the quantitative world, and then the, the world of thinking and words and storytelling. And to be honest, I, I, I'd worked in ESG consulting for a while prior to getting into kind of more of the, the human resources consulting side of the house. And my observation when working in ESG consulting was, wow, none of this is going to work if we don't change how organizations and workforces operate. And it was that foundational insight that got me into what I do today.
0: Well, it's an interesting field for sure. Why, Why did you write this book? And this is your first book. So congratulations.
1: Thank you. So it started off in my mind years ago as Kind of, it was kind of a jokey, funny book. You know, and if, if, if folks read it, you'll still, there's still some humor, right? There's still some fun stuff. But it, it started off in my mind as kind of like adventures in the kooky future of work. You know, why do we do these things? Why do we do sprints? Why do we do open plan offices? Ha it's so silly. And then COVID hit. And I had this kind of fundamental epiphany where for my prior employer, I was leading not one, but two series of webinars on the future of work and how we were going to work during COVID. And my computer is sitting on this rickety table and I got my kid in the background trying to do kindergarten virtually, right? Um, and I'm sitting there going, how am I teaching people how to work right now? I do not know how to do work myself right now in, in the current environment. And at that point, I started thinking about, you know, is it COVID, right? Is it some of what's going on? Exactly right now, or something might just be wrong with work. Let me let me look into this. And that's where this book was born.
0: So uh, why did you start out the book with work sucks?
1: Well, for me, one of my big kind of gripes about the future of, of workspace is that we're just we're not honest enough about the bad stuff. That, you know, we wouldn't keep talking about the future of work if the, the present of work was was perfect. And here's the thing: it's never perfect, right? I, you know, look at the industrial revolution. You know, we've we've gotten better at things like people's, you know, limbs not getting physically lopped off by machines anymore, right? We've we've improved some of those aspects of work, but you know, work still kind of fundamentally sucks. And if we Start with a really good problem identification that leads us to the problem solution. If we start off in this kind of rosy, lovely place, we're not going to really fix anything.
0: What are the three to five main reasons people hate their job outside of pain? I've seen all kinds of surveys and you have them in your book as well.
1: Absolutely. I think number one, many, many people are sitting in poorly designed jobs. In the book, I talk about crazy milkshake jobs. So if you remember the Instagram milkshake craze, where people were putting like, it's like a hot dog in a milkshake and candy corn in a milkshake. And they all looked really cool in the pictures. They tasted disgusting. We've done that to jobs. We've put too much in jobs. We put elements that are too disparate, elements that don't play well together. So number one, many people are sitting in just like not great jobs. Um, I'm I'm a huge fan of uh, Zeynep Tom, who recently... Um, actually won a Thinker's 50 award for her work on, on good jobs and trying to figure out what makes a good job. I, I love that line of research and, and thinking because most many jobs are just, they're, they're bad jobs. So that's number one. Number two, you know, and you see this in the, right, all the survey data, You know, many people have crummy bosses. If you think of leadership as a job, we're not very good at figuring out what that job is and then figuring out the right people to put in it. So we make people who should never be leaders leaders. So, you know, honestly, I mean, I can give you 3 to 5, those two are most of it. I think the the third piece is kind of a version of the first one actually, which is that many organizations don't have a really good concept of how the work of the organization, the fundamental work of the organization should get done. So that's why we keep doing things like, oh, we got to reorganize the org structure. And we got to put this person in this box over here and a lot of it is kind of boxes and arrows and not taking a step back and saying, "What are we actually trying to accomplish? How do we build an ecosystem that flourishes on its own rather than a machine that we have to keep tinkering with and oiling? So I think that's the the third piece as well that leads people to to kind of hate their jobs. and then number four, and I think we'll we'll get into this in a few minutes, um, work has intensified meaningfully over over the years. We are... If you feel like you're doing more than you were doing, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago, you're right. We, we've tried to, back to that point about putting too much in the jobs, we're also just putting too much into the workday. So that's that's a little bit of my overview on where that gut feeling of, oh, I don't like my job comes from.
0: You know, it's funny you should say that. I remember this is maybe, gosh, 20 years ago, and I was with a partner from a law firm at lunch, and he goes, you know, I hate all the new technology. And I said, why? He said, before, when you took a company public, uh, there wasn't this 24-7 that you could actually, with the technology, get this done. You would drop it off at the printer, would take them a week. It wasn't the stress of, OK, we got We got to get this done and get this out the door in 24 hours. And he said, now I'm working way more hours. I'm not enjoying the partnership anymore and he said, I got to get out of this um, before I have a heart attack and die. And it turned out two years later, he did have a heart attack and died uh, while still working on the job. But he said, it's become more stressful, and less fun. And how many people do you hear that, especially like doctors? All the uh, enjoyment of helping people has been taken out by the blizzard of paperwork. And like you said, bad leaders, because even in the best schools, they're really, they talk about leadership, but they're not really teaching to be leaders. They teach them theory about leadership, but not really how to be leaders. So, and I have a friend who's an ex-Navy SEAL, and he's, t- and he has been brought in by a big game company because the gamers are all technology people with very poor social skills. And so he's working with them to make them better leaders,
1: no, it's it, it's amazing, and it's it's referencing healthcare. I mean, that is it is such a wonderful example of a job, a really common job that has changed massively. I, I spoke to one client that they were having what, what they, we would call this two surgeons problem. Every time a surgeon retired, they had to replace them with two people because nobody was willing to work the hours that older surgeons were willing to work. Because to your point, everything was denser. Right, that a surgeon could work 70 hours a week 40 years ago, but a lot of that no. would be, you know, sitting around the hospital and getting ready for it, but not the. But now, when you work 70 hours a week as a surgeon, right, you're reviewing film and you're, your technology has enabled us to do all the things all the time. And younger surgeons are saying, not only I, I you know, I don't want to work 70 hours for work life balance reasons, but I don't want to work 70 hours for intensity reasons too. I just, I can't, my brain shuts down.
0: Yeah, yeah, and, and hence, by, uh, burnout is quicker. And even for kids in college, we find that kids uh, are, you know, doing harmful things to themselves because of the intensity level of work. And we have to keep aware of how much can you actually give them before it sends them over the edge. How, how has the pandemic affected the workplace two years after people could go back to the office?
1: It's interesting. So, when I this was one of the big aha's when I was researching my book because the kind of the, the assumption we all had was sort of like work was fine and then the pandemic happened and now suddenly everything feels weird. Actually what happened was there were trends that were building for years, decades and they just became really visible during the pandemic. And the other thing that happened during the pandemic was this, and I talk about this a lot in my book, is just getting our own anxiety under control and getting our organization's anxiety under control is one of the most powerful things that we can do. Because in the pandemic, suddenly everyone's at home and I can't see them working. And so we're all sitting there like hamsters on wheels. Look at me, I'm frantically working, I'm doing all the things, <laughs> I'm scheduling all the meetings, right? And it wasn't good for anybody. So what's interesting, though, is it, it, it's kind of like, you know, that like closet in your house that you've stuffed all like the stuff and you open it and like a basketball hits you on the head. Right. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that once you've started sort of stuffing all that stuff in the closet, it's it's hard to stop doing it. And that's where we're finding ourselves two years after the pandemic that, you know, we, we took on a lot of sort of bad working practices. We noticed holes in company culture that again, I firmly believe were there all along, you know, companies are saying, okay, you know, we, we kind of got to fix our culture by getting people back into the office. And gosh, I wish that would work. You know, that would be, and I, I do think there is a greater role for in-person connection. Yeah, I think again. so too. Especially right? in However certain you industries. Yeah, yeah, I, I do think that's a positive thing. That said, Pointing the figure at remote work for problems that were bubbling and bubbling and bubbling up over many years is just not fair either.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with you to- totally. Um, how many pe- have people mentally recovered from the pandemic? Like when you're working with your clients and their people, what do you see about that?
1: Yeah, no, I, I believe not. And I, uh, I, I read a wonderful article that talked about what happened after World War II, where Uh, The young men came back from fighting the war and the women were like, "Okay, let's like get going on, like dating and stuff again and all the fun things. And the guys were like, I'm literally shell shocked. I can't. I can't. And both groups were upset. Right. With the pandemic, we are all the guys coming back from the war. Right. We were all in it. We are all traumatized. And the fact that we've kind of culturally just sort of like we're going to pick back up and keep going. We're seeing the effects of that within organizations. And part of what's interesting is the populations that are challenged to care for others within organizations, that's two groups, right? That's the human resources function and that's leaders. They're the most burned out of all, right? Those two groups. So what you have is these kind of like duplicating and, and you know, exponential effects of burnout within the system where, okay, I'm burned out. You know, I go talk to my HRBP, I go talk to my manager, and they're so burned out, the way they deal with me makes it worse. And so, you know, we, we, I think we need to do some things as a society to heal. I'm seeing clients do really constructive things about do we need to re engineer some of our ways of working to give people space for healing? But, you know, I, I firmly believe this idea that, uh, you know, life could be completely upended. And then things would just snap back. I think it's I think it's a myth.
0: Well, I have to tell you, I felt horrible for people who have young kids because my kids are adults. And so I didn't have uh, the additional burden of not only working, but actually having to educate your kids uh, for such a long period of time. And the other thing we learned was uh, learning lessons online uh, is not really workable uh, for younger kids. It's uh, too hard uh, for everybody to go and manage. It's one thing when you're an adult and you're learning uh, classes that you really want to take online, but when you have to learn something that you're not that ex- uh, excited about to begin with, and you're not able to see your friends, well, that's almost like an imp- a possible task to make it work, right?
1: Yeah, a- absolutely, absolutely. And and it's interesting because the I think in some ways the kids are more resilient, that, you know, they've bounced back from that experience of kind of troubled online learning more so than, I mean, I talked to a lot of working parents where, you know, the second their kid's like home from school, sick for a day or something, they're totally triggered, right? They're back in that COVID mode of trying to teach them school at home and all the negative emotions come rushing right back. It's like as adults, that trauma was actually harder to shake off.
0: We have a question from the audience. Post-COVID, employees are demanding more benefits like work from home, but does that not mask the need for less scrutiny? Meaning, are people trying to do less work by not going to the offices? Is the workforce becoming lazier?
1: I don't think so. I think think there's two things going on there. I think, number one, with the intensification of work you could work at the pace that someone did 15 years ago and look lazy in the current environment. that technology is throwing so much at us there's there's actually a nat, there's a natural thing about wanting to withdraw a bit that oh for instance, one client I worked with uh, believed that the literal volume of emails that people were receiving was a meaningful stressor in the environment. that once you start receiving more emails than you can handle in a day, right your brain's gonna explode. It's not you know, we're, we're wired to have this emotional response to people reaching out to us and not being having time to answer back, right? So things like that, it's not laziness, it's probably a useful retrenchment back to um, a healthy way of working. If you think about it in prior, let's look at like agrarian work. So agrarian work had natural limits to it, okay? The, the sun's gonna set, the harvest is gonna end. There were natural limits. Knowledge work doesn't have any natural limits at all. So what we're seeing is people are just finding their limits in real time. I think the other piece is, and, and you see this in a lot of the literature and the studies, people don't hate being in the office. People hate going to the office. People hate their commutes. And I'll just I mean just to brag for a second, my new job is a 10 minute walk from my apartment. I cannot tell you how excited I am about that. Because there's there's a ton of research that shows one of the major drivers of happiness in life is walking to work. And again, we kind of ignore some of these simple little things. We're like, why do they hate me? And God knows there are reasons to often hate being in the, office. you know, if you don't have enough private space to get your work done, if it's really loud, if it's, if you're a woman, the office is generally too cold, right? Office temperatures are set for men in business suits, right? So, the men aren't wearing business suits anymore, and the women are continually freezing. So there are reasons to dislike the office, but I do think it's more the commute and, and the intensification of work than the office itself.
0: Uh, I think you're right about walking to work, because uh, here at Vinn University, I have a 16-minute walk to work, and I'm listening to a book on tape, and I'm walking both ways and exercising our, our day. Since I've been here May 15th, I've lost 16 pounds. Amazing. And... I have to say my colleagues are amazing and they're fun to be around. And I had not been in an office in a very, very long time because I've been running entrepreneurial ventures and doing consulting work. So I staying home during the pandemic, that was easy for me because I've been used to working from home. But I can see where other people, that was a problem. Can you build a corporate culture without people seeing each other in person?
1: I think so. I think what's, what's really critical is, and, and I say this as a, somebody who's, again, my personal preference, my preference as a leader is to see people in person. But does that have to be a day-to-day or week-to-week thing? No, I, I don't believe that it, it has to be. What you do need are really well-agreed norms on ways of working. So if we're working virtually and like, you know, you, okay, you're in Vietnam, you're pinging me in the middle of the night, you're expecting a response in the middle of the night, and like we're trying to schedule calls and it's a mess and, you know, that, that, that's no good, right? And you're just, oh, well, you know, you're not in the same place. However, if we have this wonderfully worked out asynchronous way of working, we've agreed to call times that work for both time zones, right? We can get into this beautiful flow of work and, and really build a great team way of working Together, it's it's about having those agreed norms about how work gets done, and then being thoughtful and strategic about when people come together. I mean, one interesting strategy I'm seeing is organizations saying, okay, we're gonna give up a meaningful chunk of office space, and then we're gonna spend the same money. So it's cost neutral, spend the same money on just bringing people together once a quarter. I love strategies like that because it gives you that flexibility to draw the best talent from wherever they are, but at the same time, you have prioritized in-person interaction on, you know, a periodic basis that works for everybody.
0: Well, I, I, I still think it's uh, the beauty of getting together is getting to know your colleagues. And I think in certain industries, it's got to be tough, especially in creative industries where you're playing off against each other. But I think for law firms and accounting firms and even the work that you do, it's not that necessary uh, to be there on a daily basis.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and, you know, to think about when you are together using that time well, you know, that's, that's what's really important. If, if let's say we're doing a creative task together and we're brainstorming and, and, you know, nobody lets me get a word in edgewise, that lack of inclusion negates all the positive effects of having everyone in the same room.
0: I have found uh, we're in a bullpen situation at the university and only like the dean and executives have space, but the faculty doesn't. I do find that the faculty uh, will spend two, three days a week not coming in when they're not teaching so they can work on research because they feel the amount of noise in these um, cubicles is too much for them to be able to focus And I think a lot of people, once they changed over from offices to cubicles or some companies like SEI Corporation, where you just come in and grab a desk, uh, people don't like it. And so they somewhat rebel against it. Do you think so?
1: Yeah. So it's interesting because long ago in my career, I worked on a trading floor. And a a trading floor is, (coughs) excuse me, deliberately designed so that you listen to other people's conversations and that information helps you do your job. So, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm listening to, I'm doing a commodities trade over here. I'm listening to the foreign exchange guys about how the foreign exchange is moving. But, blah, blah, blah. you know, it, 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 you're deliberately eavesdropping. That's part of the point of everyone's job. Fabulous. That environment where you're listening to other people's calls, take a different kind of work, let's say to your point, consulting. And that's a nightmare. The last thing I want to do hear my colleagues calls, or I'm doing heads down research. To your point, um, I, I do think there is some some pushback against just generic open environments. And the interesting thing is, you don't have to go back to offices. You can just have more shielded, and I'm not talking phone booths, but more shielded private space. And and what's working for a lot of organizations is just a diverse array of space types, because not everybody, you know, it, everybody's got their sort of perfect workspace. And there's a lot of, you know, humans are very diverse in their thinking but uh, people prefer different kinds of things you know i might want to just go sit on the steps for a little while you know you might need to look out a window everybody's got different needs so the the office of the future you know what i'm seeing i, I recently went to the work tech conference in um in, in new york city and there's a lot of great discussion about the office of the future looks like and a lot of it was around let's not assume you know offices work for everybody let's not assume open plan works for everybody Let's design for the diverse array of human working styles. And let's design, to your point, around the work that's being done. And then people will kind of will will find their places. You know, maybe those folks would come in more if they were just like little kind of noise sheltered places that they could go in, do deep work for four hours, come out, ask their colleague a question, go back in. You know, there's just accommodating two things, their work and how they do it.
0: Well, uh, there's a law firm in uh, Philadelphia, pretty large one, that's gone to hoteling. So nobody has offices anymore. You contact them. And like you just said, you tell them, uh, I need a conference room. I need an office. And they're supposed to come in two, three days a week, all the attorneys. But they no longer have their own office. And they were able to shrink the space, which has been bad for Philadelphia because so many firms are shrinking the amount of space they have as more people are working part of the time at home and now they're just, (coughs) you use an office when you need it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the Um, the funny thing is there is a, it's almost like parts of the city have suffered and parts have done better. I look at my neighborhood in New York city, you know, I'm, I'm in the, the village, right? Village is doing great. More people working from home. People are working from the coffee shops everywhere. It's, it's, it's interesting. I think it's not all sort of, net positive or net negative. Some of it's even shifts within sub-neighborhoods.
0: Yeah, I think so as well. Uh, So with interest rates rising, the stock market a bit down, are people who were part of the great resignation coming back?
1: It doesn't seem like it. You know, it doesn't seem like there's been this big wash back um, into the workforce. What you have seen is a lot of companies have made cuts this year, so you're not seeing the same mobility between firms for, for two reasons. One, those cuts. But two, <clears throat> with less remote work, um, you know it, that narrows the, the pool of available jobs. So if I'm narrowed back down to jobs, you know that are hybrid, but I've got to come in in New York City, right? The my pool that I can apply to shrinks, and that means just that I've got less less mobility. So we're not seeing the hypermobility during the pandemic, but I do think where people have stepped out of the the labor force, it does seem like they've remained missing.
0: Um, What do you mean when you write work is dangerous?
1: Uh, This is an interesting one. So, you know, work, work used to be openly dangerous and many jobs still are, right? If you're a logger, you're a deep sea fisher person, right? There are many jobs that will literally kill you. That said, there's a ton of research now that working excess hours, excess stress, et cetera, is, is slowly killing a lot of us. And I think it's it's something that leading organizations, at least, are, are starting to attend to, because it does start to show up in your actual sort of you know, health plan data that organizations see, okay, I've got a greater rate of utilization for cardiac disease, for depression, for this whole cluster of ailments that... You know, folks like the United Nations or the World Health Organization have linked to overwork and again without the sort of like gruesome accidents that you see in certain kinds of work, I think we do have to be more alert to the ways that other kinds of work are dangerous it's just not as obvious.
0: Oh, I think so as well. Uh, Why do people commit suicide at work? And is there something larger playing in their personal lives rather than just the work? Or is the work pushing them over the edge?
1: You know, it's always going to be suicide is always going to be a complex topic. I think. Doing so at work, um, it, it shows I think it makes a fundamental statement of just the centrality of work to our lives. That. You know, work is work is the place where, you know, much of our adult lives happen. And when you think about it that way, you know, employers should take that environment seriously. So, you know, the person, you know, it's, that's something in their brain chemistry to your point in their broader life. So the lesson isn't, you know, the job killed them. The lesson is work is important. Workplaces are important. This is a place that people take seriously, so we should take it seriously,
0: too. You cited the stat that 43% of people are bored with their jobs. Are there certain jobs in industries that this is a common problem? And if so, can employees, can employers improve this lack of uh, satisfaction and boredom? Yeah,
1: it, number one, knowledge work. Um, that knowledge work, because we don't really understand it, we kind of overdo it. If you think about it, um, you know, physical work, you know, a, a, you're working on a car assembly line, right? Eventually a car gets made or it doesn't. If you're a consultant. I mean, you've got deliverables and stuff, but so much of knowledge work is it's, it's ethereal, it's ephemeral. So to compensate for the anxiety that creates, we just create a lot of stuff to do, and a lot of it's fairly boring. Uh, the other pieces, and you alluded to this in the, the healthcare example, the ability through technology to document our work has pushed jobs like certain healthcare jobs into too much documentation of the work and not enough emphasis on the work. So the average clinician I believe spends 15 minutes, I cite this, this stat in the book, 15 minutes on seeing a patient and then 16 minutes on doing the paperwork associated with that patient, right? Which of those two is more boring? That, you know, that, that tips the scales as well.
0: Uh, In the book, you mentioned that the boss who keeps changing his mind and not allowing you to finish anything, which is incredibly frustrating. And I think we've all had bosses like that. We've
1: all had that boss, right? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Right. Just a nightmare. Uh, what does an employee say to change that behavior, or do you just find another job?
1: It's a great question. Um, you know, you can, as an employee, continuously document the failure to reach outcomes. But again, back to the point from the prior question, at a certain point, you are spending more time documenting the dysfunction of your day-to-day <clears throat> than fixing. And there's it's it's very interesting. There was actually an HBR article uh, that I came across um, on social media about how do you know when to quit your job? And this is a very live conversation um, because there are certain roles within organizations that organizations really really struggle to fill. You know, they sit open. There's high churn in the role, and there's a very open question about you know you as an individual. Do you vote with your feet and create that data point of you know, all right, another person out of that role, uh, because the the underlying job description, um, generally, or the leadership, or both are are broken. But the, I, th- I think it's a great I think it's a great open question about when do you, as an individual, give up on either broken work or broken management,
0: and and people have so much more um, options because of Zoom uh, that you can, if you're not happy with that job in New York, you can take a job in Iowa without ever going to Iowa.
1: Yeah. And then technology helps too. I was speaking to a client recently that was implementing some big hairy system, right? It was like a lot and it was going to be really like a big thing. We're like, okay, that's a lot for you guys. Why did you decide to do it? And they said, this system is going to contain a lot of our knowledge, and we used to have to hire from this tiny pool of people, right? because they had to come in already knowing the things. We put all that knowledge into systems, suddenly we can hire from a broader, more diverse group of people. And if you replicate that across the labor market, if fewer jobs require that you've built up all of this knowledge from prior roles, and they're more about kind of your inherent capabilities and your agility, um, I, I think that's, it's good for organizations and good for individuals, to be honest.
0: Uh, a question from the audience. Uh, thanks. Numerous reports suggest that a lot of WFH employees are working two, three, or even four jobs using multiple laptops, especially those in sales, IT, social media, customer service jobs. That's just uh, people can actually do more. Your thoughts?
1: Yeah, we're in a we're in a funny moment where I think. People in many jobs should do less and people in some jobs could do more. <clears throat> that, and it, it comes back to the same, there's the same problem at the heart of both scenarios, which is just, we don't really understand the work that needs to get done and we don't build work intelligently around it. So, you know, you've got Bobby over here, who's doing a job that's really a 20 hour a week job. We've got Sally over here, who's doing a 120 hour a week job. You know, and, and both are a symptom of the same thing, that we're just not well calibrated on what the work is. And then we're not thinking about kind of the, the flow of work through the day. We're not thinking about, I wrote these bullet points in the job description. What do I expect this person to do all day? That's, you know, that, that's the, the problem at the root of both the people working five jobs and, and the people getting crushed by their one job.
0: Um, another question from the audience. With the psychology and psychiatry fields not generating enough students in medical school, how do we help the people who really need their help, including medication management, when you have the people who are today in the field, but their age is 60 to 65? What can medical schools and and not-for-profits do to help?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic question because we have that issue with a lot of jobs that we really need. I mean, there's the same issue with psychiatrists and skilled mechanics, right? Populations are aging out; people don't want to do that work anymore. one hand, we get humans breaking down here, and trucks breaking down over here, right? It's 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 a really <clears throat> pervasive issue, and I think some of it is that we need to think about again make that job of psychiatrist a good, doable job. Reduce the burden of electronic medical records. Um, create greater physical safety. A lot of times people are not going into these mental health roles, um, because they do not feel physically safe in hospital environments. That's a really palpable problem in that, in that area. Um, and I would analogize it to teachers. Like we really need teachers and people don't necessarily want to be teachers anymore either because they don't feel supported and safe and enabled in school environments. And at a certain point, we have to, as a society, step back and fix the jobs, because to your point, then all these other populations are impacted by not having people in those those caregiving roles. But at the same time, you can understand why people wouldn't, you know, wouldn't want to do that job if you feel physically unsafe that's a real stopper. If you are you know doing too many hours of, of work a week and most of it's the you know electronic medical records, not the patient care that energizes you, you know I, I, I get it I completely get it but I think it's a it's a fantastic question and I think we're hitting a demographic cliff on many many um, professions and the, the other thing we need to do is figure out a way to keep older workers insight. In the workplace, somehow. So there have been actually some nice programs at some of the uh, tech companies where they're allowing older workers to kind of, instead of like retiring, you know, off a cliff, kind of, you know, slide into retirement and particularly spend time coaching and mentoring younger workers in the field. And I think psychiatry and psychology could really benefit uh, from something like that, where it's not either, you know, work full time and be completely in the thick of it or be completely retired, but give those older workers some more optionality and and. Keep some of that, you know, kind of great talent in the mix as long as you can. But you do have to fix the front end problem of once people are saying, "I won't go to school for this job. I don't want to do it." That is as stark a statement as possible, right?
0: We have we have to remember we need these people, just like police uh, and fire. And you can imagine uh, how difficult being a psychiatrist or a psychologist must be, and the kinds of things that you're hearing. And have to keep to yourself. Oh my God, the emotional drain is going to be incredible. Um, another question from the audience: Eighty percent of neurodiverse people are under or under or unemployed and not able to maintain their jobs. Big tech companies are trying to hire neurodiverse people past ten years and are not successful. Any thoughts on how to support neurodiverse uh, individuals in the workplace?
1: So this, this, is a, this topic is, I think, one of the most interesting ones in kind of how we think about workforces today, which is the idea that there are population groups and neurodiverse folks are one, you know, caregivers are another, people who are formerly incarcerated are another, um, people who emigrate from another country. You know, there's, there's all of these groups where there's amazing talent, wonderful people, and we just do not do a good job of including those folks in workforces and workplaces. And so the neurodiversity example is a, is a really good one because to the, the person asking the question's point, it, we've, we've made some strides, we've made some efforts and we're not necessarily doing great. And I think there's a few, things, few areas where organizations can push to do this better. Uh, because this issue, if you think about it, if we're, the birth rates are continuing to sink, right? Population's aging we're never gonna have as big a workforce as we used to have. So we've got a few choices, right? You know, you can either do a better job of making your workplace good and retaining people better. You can redesign the work so it's more palatable or you can hire from populations you didn't hire from previously, right? And so this is that that third one. It's one of the best levers organizations have. And again, it's, it's good for the world, right? It's good for the workers, it's good for the world. So there's a few things. Number one, dig into the everyday experience of work. So, you know, let's say you got a, a neurodiverse individual into a, a role that's supposed to be really well suited to their needs and ways of working, but then people are still interacting with them in, in ways that don't work, right? Because they haven't been appropriately sensitized, and, et cetera, et cetera, and you haven't thought about how that job interlocks with the thirty-seven other jobs around it. Which, by the way, is again a common work problem, not unique to this. That's number one, the, the everyday, and number two really thinking about the whole life cycle, right? Sort of the hire to retire, Have, did you engineer everything properly through the talent acquisition process? So both the manager understood the person that they were hiring and the person understood what they were being hired to do. And again, that's a generic issue, but then when you're hiring less represented groups like neurodiverse folks, it, it gets more piquant. Did you really think through again, the job design? And then did you really think through what does what does good look like? How long do you want people to stay for? I mean, in those same tech companies, the average tenure for any worker can be as short as 18 months. So if you hired a neurodiverse individual and they stayed for 36 months, maybe you've got a huge win, right? The, the metrics for success and, and really thinking about what does good look like for that whole life cycle. I, I think you, you kind of have to Think that through, and it it may reflect back that 18 months tenure for everybody is not the right thing either, right? That's a very fast shifting organization. So it's a a complicated one. I'm incredibly excited to see the work that's already being done on it, but I agree there are a lot more yards to go. Uh,
0: Another question from the audience. Uh, Two groups seem to be at odds with the current work landscape. Parents who really can't be in the office eight hours plus commute five days a week. And entry-level employees who might be under undertasked or could be overwhelmed because they need the learning uh, by osmosis from working in person. How can managers square those together when there is some sense that the big boss wants forty good hours from everyone?
1: Yeah. So this is a fantastic question. I actually talk about this clash a lot. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm living it, right? I'm the I'm the the parent who's saying, you know, okay, I. I would struggle with like a big commute and a ton of hours in the office. But at the same time, I see on my own teams, right, those early in career folks who really do need the, you know, in as much as it's possible, in-person coaching and and mentoring. So there are a few, again, levers you can kind of push to to make this better. Number one, seeing some organizations focus on just what is it, this this is so silly and basic, what does it mean to have a high quality conversation with somebody? Somebody comes to you with a problem. How do you talk to them? There's some very basic leadership skills that are not evenly distributed across the population inherently, and haven't been necessarily taught evenly. So making sure, you know, maybe you know, Melissa's not in the office five days a week, but the three days when she's there, if I stop her in the hallway, I have a really good interaction with her. So just every day, folks like Kevin Eikenberry talk about like everyday interactions, and I love that. Right? Like make sure that conversation is good. And then I think the other piece is to just defocus on the you know, the 40-hour work week is a construct of the, the industrial revolution, you know, and it had to do with setting up machines and how long they could run, and it had to do with, frankly, some heavy-handed psychological surgery we did on people to get them out of agrarian work. There's a very particular history of the 48-hour work week, and in some ways it's good. It was a protection for workers, but in some ways it's not great. So can we defocus? on that number, because the reality is that early in career worker might say, for my sanity, I need to go to yoga at lunch in the same way that the parent would say, I need to like leave at three, pick up my kid and then pick my laptop back up at four from home. So, you know, if we can all kind of get less fixated on those big chunks of time in the outlook calendar and focus more on sort of appropriate flexibility, but also high quality interactions when we do interact in person, I think that's a little bit of the secret sauce.
0: Yeah, I I think that every study shows that once you hit over 30 hours, I guess, uh, then the return on investment is pretty low. And for entrepreneurs, it's different because there's always one more thing, one more thing, one more thing you could do. And it's a different life altogether. And, And because we're doing it, we're intellectually interested and challenged. So it's not boring for us. So we end up working 70 to 100 hours a week. Maybe that's not the healthiest thing, but we're intellectually uh challenged and so that makes the time go fast so there's no boredom uh involved with that um can you please explain the concept of greedy work which is what we're talking about i think now and uh how does someone regain control
1: yeah greedy work is a great topic so claudia golden the economist who originated the concept actually just won the nobel prize
0: oh wow
1: yeah, it's 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 super it's super exciting. Um, and what's less exciting is that greedy work is a palpable issue. And greedy work is basically where work just takes over your your entire life, right? You're working during breakfast. You're working in the evenings. You're working on vacation. Yeah. Working in the weekends, right? And again, we've we've all been there. We've all been there. And a lot of it is at this point enabled by technology. You know, how many people? Somebody was telling me the other day their dog is triggered by Zoom, uh, not Zoom Teams pings right? When the little, you know, or whatever, but their dog gets upset because their dog can sense the anxiety it sets off in them. And that really says something, you know, the fact that we are just like reachable all the time. So you can take some concrete steps. I mean, I, for instance, I do not have work emails pop to the lock screen of my phone. Just turn off any notifications you can turn off. You know, maybe you turn the sound off on Teams. So shutting down notifications is a great one. Um, A lot of working parents now really constructively use calendar blocks of, okay, you know what, while we're doing breakfast, you can't schedule a meeting, right? I'm not available. But it takes a certain psychological strength, that statement of I'm not available, I'm going to wait to respond. Um, Again, that means managing your own anxiety. And people, you know, especially people pleasers like myself, like, oh, my God, they're so mad at me. I didn't respond right. to the email yet. You know, shut that voice down and you regain a lot of control.
0: Uh, why has technology created more right. and not less work, which growing up watching the Jetsons, which you mentioned in here. So uh, I hate to say that. Yeah, gives us yeah a all his whole date. job is just
1: pressing the button. Right. But he's yeah. still stressed out.
0: Yeah. And a uh, cartoon uh, mentioned in the book. so. And, and, and it hasn't turned that way, out that way. I mean, all those predictions that we'd work less, have more time. It's just the reverse, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because again, we don't know. We haven't connected the work well enough to outcomes to understand what's the wheat and what's the chaff. That we're, We actually, technology may have dramatically speeded up the core of the work, but we don't know what's the core and what's just like random stuff we're doing just to do it. You know, if you go through kind of your, your meetings in a week, how many of them are truly substantive? How many email exchanges really actually advance the cause of what you're doing? I think there's there's a tremendous disconnect. And there's also just, again, a sort of a willful ignorance of humans' natural limitations. So for the book, for instance, I read a lot about people working with robots in warehouses. And we've sort of said, well, if the robot can move this fast, all right, the people just gotta go. And you're getting all these repetitive stress injuries. and you know, some of it is just we, we have to reinstate some of the natural limitations of human beings.
0: Uh, you mentioned a study that one in four CEOs was technology savvy. Why is that a problem? And is that changing with the generations?
1: I, it is my fervent hope that it is changing with the generations. I mean, certainly I look at my daughter and her friends and, you know, they can all edit video and do kind of amazing stuff like that. Right. So fingers crossed. In the current moment, right, with a lot of generations in the, in the workplace, and by the way, it's not necessarily a generational thing. There's not to toot my own gen poor Gen X's horn here for a second, but we came of age at sort of a weird moment when you could tinker with technology and fix it. So there, there's I've seen the argument made that Gen X is the only truly tech-savvy generation because we understand how the insides of technology work as opposed to our you know, older groups in the workforce who don't understand it at all, and younger groups who are used to working, to it working so seamlessly that when it breaks, they can't fix it. That Gen X had this unique experience with kind of creaky technology that we could fix. It's, it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting theory, but the issue is that a lot of decisions today involve technology and executives are desperately scared to admit that they, they really don't know what they're, what they're talking about. And that's, that's alarming, you know, the, if you think about it, they couldn't get away with a, this kind of a lack of finance knowledge as a, for instance, but they can get away with this kind of a lack of technology and that's troubling.
0: Um, I might have misunderstood <coughs> stood this, so you'll correct me if I'm wrong, you talk about the concept of agile innovation, which I'm actually teaching right now at Venn University and minimum viable product regarding technology and employee development. How has that concept been used when developing people?
1: Yeah, so it's it's a, it's a really interesting one. Um, I mean, if you think about it, the minimum viable product concept is that <clears throat> we're always working on an unfinished version of something, and that's okay. But we have to sort of manage our expectations and and behave differently. If you think about it, we often get frustrated with technology and, you know, like, the next release is gonna drop next week, right? It's gonna, it's like the weather, you know, if you don't like it, wait and it's gonna change. Um, And I I think there is a a great extrapolation to be done from that to do we need ways of working also that better emphasize, um, you know, minimum viable product that part of what's creating overwork and intensified work may be perfectionism in an era where perfectionism is not relevant anymore.
0: Um, Is it true that Tomas uh, Chimero, uh, and I'm butchering his name, uh, Prismatic uh, writes that good leadership looks like actually causes us to select blustering, incompetent leaders? Well, why is that?
1: Yeah, he's written very, very smartly about this, that we have this um, mental model of leaders, right? That they're like at the front, like telling the troops what to do. And so we select for these behaviors And those behaviors actually make for terrible leaders, but it's our mental stereotype. What you actually want is the person who might be sitting there quiet for the first 10 minutes of the meeting and listening and then asking the right questions. But that person doesn't present as a leader. The person who comes in charging and yelling, right? Fits that stereotype, fits that mental model. So uh, you know, his, his point is that we then pick people who are totally incompetent. But research tells us that one of the best- predictors of incompetence is an outstanding level of confidence, that if you never question yourself, you are almost unquestionably bad at what you do.
0: I agree with that totally. Uh, People who are not reflective are terrible leaders. Uh, Can you please talk about the concept of misunderstood work and how that can negatively affect an organization?
1: This is a really interesting one because as as technology gets more and more advanced, um, fewer and fewer of our bosses understand what we do all day long. And again, we've all had that boss, right, where they they just didn't have a bloody clue what our job was or how we did it. And that's an issue. That kind of misunderstood work is an issue because, you know, if you don't understand what your team does, how the heck do you manage it? And uh, uh, very meaningfully, how the heck do you risk manage it? That my, my belief is that the crisis of, of 2008, that simply managers not understanding what their teams do is one of the great existential issues of work. And again, this is where managers who are humble and ask questions are that that's an organizational superpower. If you can say, you know, Sally, I don't actually quite understand what you do. Can you explain it to me? Right. That can get you out of a whole lot of messes in advance.
0: Um, Peloton chief people officer uh, Delana Brand writes, without transparency, there can be no accountability and without accountability, there can be no equity. What she mean by that?
1: I think it's I, I, I love I love that quote, because the idea is if you can't if you can see change or lack thereof. Right? Suddenly somebody is accountable. So, you know, as a, for instance, if we can't see what are the diversity metrics within an organization, or are we, you know, paying people fairly across gender lines or, or racial or ethnic lines, um, you know, how are we, how are we ever going to fix it? So as soon as there's, you know, what is it? Sunlight is the best disinfectant. As soon as there's visibility on the data, there's accountability. Somebody's got to fix it. And once somebody's got fix it. That's what takes us on the path uh, to equity. But it's a, it's a tricky road, right? There are legal obstacles many times to that data being transparent. Um, and there's also the, the kind of human element. So this is my, my column that's um, upcoming in the MIT Sloan Review actually talks about this, that in a more transparent world, managers have to, deal, have to deliver more messages that people may be uncomfortable hearing. So that moment of, I'm telling you something, Mark, and you're like, okay, good information, Melissa. That doesn't make me feel very good. That moment is something we really have to develop and prepare leaders for, because that's a tough moment.
0: Uh, Aren't companies having an honest conversation about cybersecurity and what will that feel like for the organization? Why is this an issue now?
1: Yeah, this this is another one where it just the world's gotten more complex, right? Companies have never before been under the level of cyber threat that they are right now. And what that leads to is a somewhat disrupted technological experience, right? We're all doing two-factor authentication and updates are downloading all the time. And everything actually works slower because of cyber protection. And if you have that conversation with people and you say, look, this is what's going on, right? This is why everything seems to be kind of a pain in the butt. They'll say, okay, I get I get it, right? I don't want us to be taken down by some huge cyber attack. But we don't have the conversation because I think we don't adequately appreciate how humans interact with technology and what a meaningful part of a lot of workers' day-to-day experience interacting with technology is. And people hate work technology a lot of the time. Um, and, and sometimes that is because you know, as an individual, you're not necessarily going to ever suffer a cyber attack in your lifetime. Your company is 100,000 billion times more likely to suffer one. So that's why your technology works so quickly at home and a lot slower at work. But if you don't think about the human technology interface as an integral part of the employee experience, you're just never going to go have those conversations and everyone sits there quietly frustrated and you wonder why.
0: Um, Why did Bauer Spar's chief diversity officer say pervasive gaps in appreciating for performance can make diverse talent less sticky to organizations?
1: Yeah, I mean, this this is sort of a seminal inclusion issue that I don't think is, is adequately appreciated, is that we are just as organizations not as good at recognizing the contributions of underrepresented groups. So take, for instance, there's some great Rob Cross research from years ago about how when you use network analysis, a huge amount of the collaboration uh, within organizations is born on the backs of a relatively few women and they're burned out. And that situation of you're in an underrepresented group, be it again, gender, race, ethnicity, national origin, et cetera, et cetera, where in every single interaction, you just get a little bit less credit than the people from better represented groups, right? That the men just get a few more pats on the back. The workers who are born in the United States just get a few more pats on the back, right? That micro, like the sort of 1%, 2% slippage in every interaction adds up to hundreds of percents, eventually. And then you get, and, and data proves this out, if you're from an underrepresented group, your retention numbers are lower across every organization, everywhere, all the time. And it's one that, that hasn't been adequately addressed because it is in some ways an ownerless problem, right? It's you have to change every little micro interaction to make sure people are intuitively giving credit to who does the work when bias has kind of quietly crept in. So I, I love that she, she flagged that when I uh, interviewed her, but I do think it is a, a tricky, tricky problem.
0: Uh, well, lack of diversity affect a company's com- uh, competitive position. I've seen studies by Harvard that shows that's, I mean, hugely true, not like a little bit, but huge.
1: Yeah, a- absolutely. I mean it affects innovation, right? Tons of research on that. It affects again, risk management. I mean, what's the, there's some great study about um, how all the leaders at Enron belong to the same country club. So that level of kind of group affiliativeness and group think, Right. When a a threat comes over the horizon, you're unprepared to respond because everybody thinks the same thing and everybody's talking to each other all the time. Um, So I I think, you know, organizations need to think about it both ways. It's not just like, okay, well, you know, we're sacrificing some innovation. You're also sacrificing a ton of risk management and downside management. You should consider that as well.
0: Uh, Last question. With all the pressures people. Oh, here we have a question from the audience. Uh, why isn't technology used to solve the problems, but be the problems? Who's working on this and who should we talk to? Uh, who should we talk to? McKinsey, Deloitte, BCG, so that CEOs learn.
1: Yeah, I, I think that that question rightly points out that it's an ecosystem problem. So technology is designed by relatively homogeneous groups of people. So we do need to point the finger at Silicon Valley and say, you know, as, as a, for instance, you um, I and most women I know can't use virtual reality goggles because they make us nauseated because they were designed by men and tested by men, right? But like, I don't know, because my body weight's below whatever, I, it makes me vomit, gross, terrible,
0: uh-huh.
1: so, right? There's the tech company piece. There's To the point in the question, there's the consulting piece. And I do, I believe in ethics in consulting and I believe in sustainability in consulting and consultants need to take a, a more piquant role in talking about how technology operates at work and how it has to be employee centric. It's not a nice to have, it's a must have. It it will not be effective in achieving your business goals and you're burning out your workers the way you're deploying technology right now. So you have to get smarter um, about that. And I do think we're gonna end up with, you know, what ultimately cleaned up back to those factories in the industrial revolution, right? Where people are getting their arms chopped off. What Uh cleaned that up? There was a government role too, right? There was some government regulation in the picture, and it was a true public-private partnership, and I think we're going to get there on tech too, and I'm encouraged to see some of the early efforts on things like AI, because I think the government's got to get into the the question too, that there are things that private industry is always going to be too self-interested to properly self-regulate on, and there's there's a role for government as well, but to the point in the question, it is an ecosystem, and everybody's got to look at it together.
0: Melissa, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Congratulations on this book. We look forward to your next book. And you're such a fun interview. Yeah, and I love the uh, cover of the book. So again, congratulations. Thank you for um, giving us your time. And um, we'll look forward to staying in touch with you.
1: Fantastic. Thank you so much. This was a great conversation.
0: Everyone have a wonderful weekend. We'll look forward to seeing you next week. Bye-bye.